game this weekend. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> I've been trying to think some way of how to connect this week's message with cars. But I must admit, I would have some difficulty because usually, like, there's no cars in the Bible. So then I thought, of, uh, until, and so I actually had a, a, okay, you're going to the bathroom? Okay, he's going to the bathroom. Uh, until, uh, I actually had some difficulty with this message until I remember my first experience buying my first car. And uh, if you've been to church, uh, you might recall that there's a book in the Bible called the book of Proverbs. And Proverbs are a short, a set of short, concise truths that are God-breathed. However, uh, in the back of our minds, there's another set of Proverbs that's not necessarily inspired by God, but they're there anyway. They're kind of good advice things. Things like cleanliness is next to godliness. Or anything worth doing is worth overdoing. Or early to bed to wise makes a man healthy and wise. Or my favorite, if it ain't broke don't fix it. While uh, there actually might be some situations where that last one is great advice, that last one is actually very terrible, terrible advice In if you are applying it to buying a car. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. But the problem is, is something can still run and be broken, and I didn't realize it until my car actually blew up in my face. Which is exactly what happened to me with my very first car. A 1986 Oldsmobile V8. I bought it for a dollar. I was so impressed at my cheapness. It took me $700 to make it row worthy, but I did it. Now, just because it was my first car, I had no idea how to maintain a car. So my initial thought when I bought the car was, if it works, it's fine. I don't need to fix it. Just turn it on, and if it ain't broke, don't worry about it. Now, here's the thing. I had the car for less than a month before I was driving it all the way from Three Hills to Drumheller. And on my way to Drumheller, I was, I was, I was approaching a car that was driving what I considered really, really, really slow. So I signaled and turned uh, into the oncoming lane to pass. I blew past him, and he said... Ah, uh, it feels nice to have a set of wheels. Not less than a minute later, I looked in my rear view mirror, and all I saw was a white plume of smoke coming out my back end of the car. No sooner did I change my gaze from the rear view to the front of the car, and there was also an equally big plume of smoke coming out the front end of the car. Not wanting the car to blow up, I actually... Turn, I uh, actually uh, pulled the co car over and uh, <clears throat> was able to look and eventually look in the underneath the hood and found out that there was a hole a foot long in the radiator tank. I had been driving without a uh, without fit, without with a broken radiator tank, not realizing that I was leaking coolant everywhere and. If it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? And while I think that that is, I've found that is a great illustration for how you and I approach our personal lives and relationships. We tend to think about uh, that, that are because our lives work and they run, they're not broken. Uh, 
But what if they are broken and we can't tell that they're broken because they still run until every, and, then when, and then something falls apart and then we realize that there's a problem. I'd like to read for you a story this morning about something that happened similar. You are all familiar with the story on some degree. I'm going to take a little bit of a different take on it. And it comes from Genesis chapter 4, verses 2 all the way to 14. And I'm actually going to read it in the NLT this morning uh, just uh, to, to help us understand what is going on. When she, meaning Eve, gave birth to Cain, she said, With the Lord's help I have produced a man. Later she gave birth to his brother and named him Abel. When they grew up, Abel became a shepherd and while Cain cultivated the ground. When it was time for harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of his firstborn lambs to the flock. The Lord accepted Abel's and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. And this made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. Why are you so angry, the Lord asked Cain. Why, why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right, but if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at your door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. One day, Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out into the fields, and while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother. Abel and killed him. Afterward, the Lord asked Cain, Where is your brother? Where is Abel? I don't know, Cain responded. And am I my brother's guardian? But the Lord said, Look what you've done. Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are cursed and banished from the ground, which is swelled from your brother's blood. No longer will the ground produce good crops for you, no matter how hard you work. From now on, you will be a homeless wanderer on the earth. And then this is, I want you to catch what he said in response. Cain replied to the Lord, My punishment is too great for me to bear. You have banished me from the land, and you have banished me from your presence. You have made me a homeless wanderer. Now there's a lot in that story that I could, I could talk about, both the traditional aspects of that story. I could talk about justice. I could talk about anger. I could talk about... I could talk about... Uh, mastering your sin, I could talk about all that, but whenever I read the story, I always get a little bit, uh, I always I always wonder that there was two parts of the story that are left out that I would really wish that uh, was in there, but aren't, but are for some reason God saw fit not to put it in the story. And that's actually what happens between verses 2 and 3, and what happens between verses 16 and 17. So if you notice, we're not told what happens, but I could speculate that um, <clears throat> there is a little bit of a gap between two, verses 2 and 3, right? So it says that they're born, and immediately after it says that they're working the ground. I don't know if you, but I don't, I don't remember any babies actually working the ground that young. So I would have, I would have, it was reasonable to assume that there's a fair bit of uh, growing up there that we're not told about. We're not told about the family life in some way. And although we're not told about the family life, I'm going to speculate and argue today that uh, what we, that Adam or Cain and Abel grew up in, grew up in a relatively quote-unquote normal family. Now, I, w- I, w- I would probably suggest that there's no 
major glaring issues outside of what would have been normal from the family. And you're like, well, how would you know that? It, it actually just comes from Cain's response to, or, uh, to God when God punishes him. And he says this, my punishment is too great for me to bear. You have banished me from the land, but you have also banished me from your presence. And I think that's a very interesting response to give because if you are in, if inside you're broken enough where you want to kill a family member, why would you care enough about being away from God's presence? Like, if you're that much of a monster, why would that matter? And my point is, is that at some level, Cain, Cain felt God mattered to him, at least at some level, which was probably from Adam forming the faith of his children as they were young between verses 2 and 3. And although it's speculation, I think outside, the, uh, there, it would have been a normal family growing up. I would, there would have been normal harvest seasons. There would have been scenes of celebration in the home. There would have been uh, memories where scenes of Adam teaching Cain about the soil and teaching him how to find a good pasture for the flock. There would have been birthday parties and family picnics and maybe Abel doing backflips over the local waterfall. There would have been other things too, I can imagine. There would have been those non-erasable memories that every family has when, in Adam and Eve's hearts when they drop their kids asleep in the treehouse they just built under the same blanket, sharing the same pillow the, the, the brothers were together. I think, in Ad, I think uh, as far as I could tell, I think Adam and Eve did their best to have a normal family because at least... At the very least, Adam instilled in both of his boys the importance of being in God's presence. And that's why Cain says it's too much. When you banish me not only from the land, you banish me from the presence. And if he didn't care about God at all, I don't think he would say that. So I think that at some level, they did their best to be a normal family. So that's the kind of the information that I would kind of like to know about between verses 2 and 3. But... There's also what happens between verses 16 and 17. And and we don't and that's really what and I really what I wanted to find out is how Adam reacted when he found out that Abel was dead. And my guess was is that when God, when Adam found Abel he wept bitterly. And when he figured out what he what wound up happened he wept even more. I think it would have hurt a lot and I think it would have given him he would have been given to take on the guilt and start playing back in his mind. What could he have done differently? What didn't he see? I bet you in his mind he went to the famous proverb, train up a child in the way you should go and you will not depart from it. And wondering if the reason that Abel is dead is partly his fault. Adam would have rehearsed, would have rehearsed uh, uh, his whole life and his whole fatherhood. He says, maybe I should have prayed with the boys more. Maybe I should have t- taken Cain out for breakfast and asked him what was wrong. Uh, and and uh, if I note, and uh, if I maybe I should have noticed more. Maybe should I should have said something if I did notice. Maybe he would have checked into how the boys' relationships were going. Maybe he would have confronted Abel on his arrogance if if he was if he was not doing such a great job. I don't know, but I bet you at some level. There was some sort of regret. My point in all this is to say that I don't think Adam, like you and I, would have never considered 
his family broken to the degree it was until he saw what had happened. Maybe he saw a couple stressful things here and there, but nothing that would lead him to believe that this kind of thing could happen in his family. If it ain't broken, don't fix it. But what if it is broken and you can't tell because everything still works? I don't think Adam realized how broken his family was until he saw his son in his own blood. You see, friends, my main point this morning is just like the car, just like Adam, our lives are broken, but we usually can't tell that until our lives fall apart. You see, friends, the Bible tells us that God created the world good, perfect, and great. It was amazing. It was, a, it was paradise on earth. He made you and I in his image. But the Bible also tells us that sin entered into the world and broke the image. And in a sinful world, nothing works the way that it should. Every part of our humanity is broken. Our body is broken. Our intellect is broken. Our ability to have common sense, I would argue, is broken. Our emotions are broken by sin. The distortion of my power to choose is broken by sin. Our relational capacity is broken by sin. Our bodies are broken by sin. There's distortion in every sort of way. And it affects us on every sort of level. The problem is, however, is a broken mirror still reflects an image. And that's the problem with sin, is that we are broken. We are, we are, there is something wrong inside, but life still functions and still works like normal. And because of that, we don't really realize that there is a problem until life falls apart. And then we come to God and ask him for help. <clears throat> and here, here's what I'm going to say today. And I want, I'm going to go back to this in a minute. But listen, if your life is broken and falling apart, I want you to know something. Is that God is not afraid of your broken life. No matter how damaged and wounded you are, God wants you. But I also know that God's desire for your heart is to fix your broken life before your life does fall apart on an epic scale. And I want to be careful here not to crush you. I'm not saying that your life is written off, and I'm not saying that your family isn't healthy. There is so much health in people's lives here in this church. I've been blessed with a great church. But to be honest, there is a measure of sickness and brokenness in everyone that needs some fixing at some level. Every marriage, including mine, every relationship, every church, every, every job, every ministry, all our kids inherited some sort of brokenness or sin and, has developed, and some of it has been developed on our own. Wouldn't it be just a relief if you and I could just stop pretending that our lives aren't broken and just admit that they are? See, I've been in ministry... For about 10 years, longer, almost two decades, if you consider all the time I volunteered. And in that time, I've noticed from my own personal experience in ministry that it's only when the broken families realize that there's a problem in their relationships or in their own lives, only when the worst thing that has happened can happen. And it comes as a complete shock to you and to me 
And a lot of us would go, when something hits the fan in our lives like that, we didn't see it coming. So instead of asking if our lives are broken, wouldn't it be better just to admit that we are broken and we need help? Maybe brokenness is too strong of a word. Maybe, maybe stress points might be better. Where's the stress points in my relationship? Where's the woundedness? Where's their conflict? And then begin to address it before, <clears throat> before we come across something epic, like a, like a divorce or falling out of an epic relationship. This, uh, I think this and I applies to the two, two kinds of people this morning. And Just let me speak to this and we'll, we'll close up here. For those of you that have checked out from God, that you're a skeptic to Christianity, that you're not really a believer in Jesus Christ, my, 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 um, my application to you this morning is, or my exhortation to you this morning would be this. Don't wait until your life falls apart before you come to Jesus. You see, Christians talk a lot about the idea that we're dead to sin, that we're sold to a slave of sin, and that we need Jesus to save us. But I've noticed that lots of people don't come to Jesus until when their lives are going great, it's when their lives fall apart. And maybe your life is great. Maybe you've lived 30 maybe you've lived in your 30s, your 40s and your 50s and life hasn't been perfect, but it's been pretty good. You've got the job you've always wanted, you've got the family you've always wanted. You've got the level of affluence. Your life is going pretty good. You've got the nice house and the nice toys. And you're able to get the good harvest every year. Your marriage is good. And so when you come to church and you hear pastors like me talk about sin, it really doesn't hit home in your life because your life isn't that broken. So why would you ask Jesus to fix it? Most of us come to faith in Jesus because our lives are falling apart. We've, we've kind of adapted the model if it ain't broken, don't fix it. But what if it is broken and you just can't tell because your life still works, like my car? And for those who are, so if you are new here to, and you're exploring Christianity, and my, my, my advice and my, my encouragement to you is, is like if your life has fallen apart, don't worry, God, God still has your back. But if you haven't gotten to that place yet, I would encourage you to come to faith in Jesus. Second of all, for those of us who have been going to church for a long time, I would, I would say to us this morning that the way that this applies to you is that, is that you and I, uh, maybe God has done some major healing since you've become a Christian. Maybe there's things in your life that God has been working through and you've been trying to fix and God has healed it, but maybe there's something in your life that God has been tugging in your heartstring and has been asking you, uh, Hey, I want to, I want to, I want to fix this, and I want to deal with this, and it, and you've been like, well, my life has been pretty good. I, I'm, I don't, I don't really want to face that issue or deal with that issue. And my encouragement to you would be to let allow Jesus to speak in and to heal it before it falls apart, before it actually becomes a problem and it falls apart. If you're unaware or not sure about where that life that that would be or what area of your life would be just a quick uh just a quick application all of us all of us in our life have things that we run to when life gets stressful and uh gets crazy it could be anything it could be video games it could be work it could be the garage it could be relationships 
It can be something inappropriate. It doesn't really matter. But there, all of us have something that we go to when life gets stressful, when life gets too hard, that we use just to take the edge off the stress. And so my question for you is, like, what is that thing for you? Is it work? Is it video games? Is it a relationship? Is it food? What is it? If you were, and then I just want you to ask one simple question, and that is this. As if you were suddenly not able to do that thing anymore, that thing that you run to, to face the stress in your life or deal with that kind of issue, what issue would you have to face? Because that's likely the area that God would want to work on and begin to heal and fix. Not because he's a mean God or condemning God, but because he doesn't want, he doesn't want your life to fall apart like my car did. In conclusion, what if you didn't realize that your life was broken before it's too late? Well, I have something encouraging to say to you too. This comes from Jesus' own words about this very issue. It's called the parable of the prodigal sons. And I just want to read it to you and then we'll close. It says this. A man had two sons. The younger soul told his father, I want my share of your estate now, now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his two sons. A few days later, his son packed up all his belongings and moved it to a distant land and there wasted his money on wild living. At about the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him out to feel the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but, he gave, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at my home, even the hired servants have enough food to spare. And here I am, dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, <clears throat> I've sinned against heaven and hell, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him, and said, his father said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and, and against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your my son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet, and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate the feast, for the son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. And so the party began. Friends, churches, a hospital for the broken, lost and empty and confused, desperate and rejected. Every sinner has a future at church, and every saint has a past. And I want to let you know that there's a lot of things I could say about this parable, but the, the one thing I want you to show, see about God's heart is that God never stops searching for his lost children. You see, in the fa story, the father was there at the end. He was looking, he was waiting, he was seeking, and he was welcoming. God was there at the end when he hit rock bottom and he was broken. And destitute. God welcomed him in. God's love is constant and patient. God will never gives up on his children, but shows joy and forgiveness when they come back. 
You see, friends, I want to let you know something. Even though that God wants to fix our brokenness before it blows up in our lives, God is not afraid of our brokenness. It doesn't matter what we have done, and God is going to be there at the end of our mistakes, at the end of our sin, and at the end of our pain. When we've hit rock bottom, he will be there. At the end of, the, at the end of our story, he's going to be there. What an amazing picture it is about the goodness of God. And so I want to let you know that whether your life has fallen apart or hasn't fallen apart, you can come to God with your brokenness because he loves you. Amen? Amen. Let's continue on with a song or two. <laughs>